My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to educate, but to entertain, teach, put in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. He who hesitates is lost. If you wait for a green light to start buying stocks, you know what? You're going to end up waiting too darn long. Let's say the bell does go off. The signal is sounded. You get the all clearer. The problem is the bell always goes off way too late. The signal blasts after the fact, and the all clear just tells you that the easy money, it's already been made. On a day like this one, we had many cross currents. Dow dipping 59 points, S&P declining 0.22%, NASDAQ dropping 0.23%. It's time. I want to spend some time explaining why you cannot wait for the bell to go off. For many people, this is the most mystifying part of the business. So listen up. The notion that the biggest opportunities come long before the bell gets rung. The siren sings and the klaxon blares, whatever the heck else you're waiting for before you pull the trigger, is exactly what Mad Money wants to teach tonight. Exhibit A, Texas Instruments, which reported last night. Now, I'd like to think I know more about the semiconductor company than just about anyone else in the business. I have a long history with this stock. Back when I was studying for the New York bar exam, I lived in a country house near Westport, Connecticut. Every day, I'd commute to Grand Central Station on my way to cram classes for the test. At the time, there was this Merrill Lynch quote machine in the middle of Grand Central, right the floor there. And it was not too far away from a payphone. I was always jonesing for Texan, as we called it, trying to find a good entry point in this stock of this company that really popularized basic semiconductors. Here's what I discovered. 35 years ago, this is what I found out. The stock of Texas Instruments seems totally divorced from the company of Texas Instruments. If you only looked at the company, it was very much a feast or famine operation. But the stock never reacted to the feasts. When I used to trade out of my dorm at law school, I'd always get my head bashed in by Texas Instruments stock because I kept hearing all those great things about it. And I, what did I do? Buy, 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 buy. I stroll over to Harvard Business School and read research reports from firms now long gone. They tell me Texas Instruments was in the sweet spot. So I figured the coast was clear. Then the stock would go down and I would feel like a total dope. I couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong. So I did some digging. I looked at the history to see when the stock would make its biggest moves. I wanted to know the best time to buy the stock of Texas Instruments. The answer, a couple of quarters into a downturn. You had to pounce when things were at their most ugly. You had to buy into the famine. For me, that meant buying call options out three months after checking with that quote machine in the center of Grand Central Terminal. It used to drive people crazy. I'd hit up Texan, and then it was, if it was down. I'd go run to the phone booth. I'd buy five more calls. Then I'd get back in line again. Then I'd go back to the phone booth. But you know what? My darn strategy worked. I ended up paying for that ship, my share of that summer house in Connecticut with the profits from Texas Instruments calls. I bring this up because when Texas Instruments reported last night, they talked about how they just expected to experience two quarters of declines. And according to management, it usually takes four or five quarters before the semiconductor cycle turns. Now, when we saw the headline number, which looked so good, the stock initially popped six bucks in after-hours trading. But one CFO, Rafael Lizardi, came on the conference call and told you it was too soon for him to give the all-clear signal because of that bottoming cadence I just mentioned. Texas Instruments gave up every penny of those gains and then some. This morning, the stock opened down a buck and change. I railed against this. See, to me... Uh, the, this was the seminal Grand Central Station moment to buy call options on Texan. I said it on, on uh, Squawk of the Street. you got to watch that show. Because if you wait for the cycle to actually turn, you will be way too late. Yet lots of people were desperate for verification from management, so they dumped the stock when they didn't get it. That's a huge mistake. The executives of Texas Instruments aren't trying to help you time the semiconductor cycle, for heaven's sake. They're just trying to run the business. And that's a very different thing. While the stock ultimately rebounded and closed up two bucks today, so it shows I was kind of right, I still think it's a steal. Oh, and talk about the need to be ahead. Lamb Research told you last quarter a bottom could be in hand for semiconductor equipment. It crushed the numbers tonight, rewarding the bold beyond what most stocks are doing this very evening. That was easy. 
We see this kind of thing all the time. Look at Apple. Nearly 60 points ago, Tim Cook was telling us that the company's best days were still ahead of it. But Apple had just pre-announced some hideous numbers. And they were involved in a major lawsuit with Qualcomm over royalties. We didn't know how that would play out. We just knew Apple couldn't afford to be late for the next rollout, the rollout of 5G, which is the next generation of wireless technology, because it wants to do right by its installed base. And while people fretted about who would win the suit, they forgot that Apple didn't really have a credible 5G game plan without Qualcomm's chips. Yeah, there's kind of nobody else. When the two companies reached a settlement last week, Qualcomm's stock exploded higher. It's still going higher, but Apple stock also rallied about seven bucks. Now, if you had waited until after the settlement, you missed some incredible moves. The big money was made before you got the all clear. Oh, a memo to Qualcomm. Apple's one of your best partners now. I would take the more magnanimous approach, guys. No need for, like, the trash talk. This isn't Barstool. Oh, how about Disney? CEO Bob Iger has spent months explaining how amazing Disney's new offerings would be now that it's acquired Fox's entertainment assets, especially the new streaming service. That's why I've been pushing the stock for ages. So what happens? When Disney showed us what the new offerings would look like just two weeks ago, the stock jumped from $116 to $135. Once again, you were better off buying it before management gave you the green light as opposed to waiting for to buy Disney. And there's Chipotle. After all those nasty health scares, some people thought the team would never bounce back. Au contraire. We had done our homework here. We knew it usually takes about 18 months for the American people to forget what went wrong. And after that, you're home free. If you listen to me on Chipotle, you're now up more than 300 points. If you waited for the same store sales numbers to turn, you missed out on two-thirds of that move. They reported a great number tonight. We're going to be sitting down with CEO Brian Nickel at 930 tomorrow on Squawk on the Street. Finally, there's Facebook. 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 Lots of people kept waiting for the disturbing revelations to end. Waiting for the resolution of its battle with the FTC. You had to get in front of that, though. You had to get in front of both of those. Why? Because the numbers tonight, I'm talking about 26% revenue growth, and they reserved $3 billion for the FTC inquiry. And they could have reserved 30 Now, you left 50 points on the table if you waited for the FTC inquiry and you waited for them to stop saying that they didn't sell your name to whoever they said they didn't sell it to. Of course, it's possible to be too early. You know, I keep waiting for this fellow, Steve Tusa, the excellent J.P. Morgan analyst who covers General Electric, to sound an all clear. Uh, Getting a lot of crickets on that one. But here's the bottom line. The early bird gets the worm, people. And in this case, the early bird is the one who knows you need to buy a stock before the underlying business turns around. While the other birds are still cowering in their nests, waiting for the call that will always leave them late for dinner. Aaron in Michigan. Aaron. Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Aaron, is my great uh, regarding, pleasure. Uh, regarding sleep number, symbol SNBR, I've had the stock quite a while. I'm up about 300%. Wow. They... Uh, yeah, I've had it for, you know, several years. They released results last week. They met and surpassed earnings expectations, and they reiterated prior forward guidance. They did miss revenue microscopically, $2 million on $425 million, and the stock, yet the stock sold off about 20% immediately and another 5% or so since. I was somewhat surprised and intrigued mm-hmm, by this. Mm-hmm. So my so my question is, do the algorithms sell stock regardless of the type or magnitude of miss? That's kind of what I think happens. Well, it's only a billion-dollar stock. Hold- it's only a billion-dollar stock. And candidly, we have to realize, you know, this has been a very competitive industry. I was surprised these guys did as well as they did. Uh, and it's come down. And, you know, candidly, Aaron, I don't really care for sleep, so it's not my strong point. Uh, but you know what? We're going to dig, dig down on sleep number. I may even have to try sleep just to see what's so great about it. Just get a little kind of feel, my hands dirty, like a field trip. But we'll do more on sleep number, and then we'll come back. Let's go to Charles in Maryland. Charles! Yes, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call and assisting the 99% of us. I okay. wanted to ask a question regarding Intel and uh, its, uh, effect in terms of recent settlement of Qualcomm and Apple. How is what is this effect going to be on the stock itself? And then looking at it short term as well as long term. And Qualcomm doesn't see, it seems to be going towards 5G. 
Intel does not. Uh, what are your thoughts? Right. Should we move to a more updated uh, uh, semiconductor stock? Well, here's what I'm learning about Intel. I think Bob Swan is actually doing a pretty darn good job. I question because he's CFO, moved right into the job. I think he's done a great job. And what he's done, by the way, is make it so that the company is in the right markets, is spending less money, good balance sheet, good yield, 12 times earnings. And therefore, even when it says I'm not going to make the modems for billions in order to be able to please Apple, it's a good stock. It's probably not done going higher. Can I go to Bruce in New York, please, Bruce? Hey, Jim, I bought all three of my 20-something kids your Get Rich Carefully book for Christmas. Thank oh, you. Oh, thank you. Yay. So you recently said these young investors might be able to take more risks, and you use biotech investments as an example. Mm-hmm. My question is, um, should they invest in a company like Rite Aid with over $20 billion in revenue from selling these biotech products? Ooh, as my four-year-old used to say, Ouchie! The problem there is that the balance sheet's not that good. Uh, I've got to tell you, if the balance sheet were good, it would be interesting spec, but we can't bet on future when balance sheet bad now. I need to go, wow. I mean, this is just, this show is all over the map. We're going to go to John in Montana. John. How you doing, Jim? I'm good. My question is uh, about AT&T. Yeah. I uh, took advantage of the Time Warner fiasco and actually doubled down when it hit an all-time low around... 28 and change mm-hmm. a few months back. So I'm not in that bad of a position, but I'm just wondering if you think it will ever ever get out of this $30 a share rut. Nah, John, John, I'm going to tell you, the cash flow was good. The cash flow was better than expected. Everything else, worse than expected, which is why it is literally a stock that I don't think is going to do very much at all. I like Verizon more. And by the way, I like T-Mobile even more. John Ledger, I mean, he's something. I heard him sing, I think, at the guard. Oh, wrong guy. But I think he's just terrific. All right, now, listen. The early and intuitive. This is like, you know, like recode. <laughs> the early and intuitive bird gets the worm. Uh, it's Kramer's bottom line. Is this... I mean, come on. I mean, and this is like kind of like shoots and ladders. I mean, we had Hasbro on last night. This is killer. All right, on Mad Money tonight, fresh out of the oven, I'm slicing up Domino's earnings. You bet I am. Uh, Then, earnings season is in full swing, and expectations are being soundly beat. Why is that? Well, I'll explain. And Zora shares have been under pressure since the company reported at the end of March. The subscription economy is sticking around. So could it be a prime buying opportunity? I'm talking with the CEO. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. The stock is heating up, and investors are placing their orders for dominoes. As technology changes the delivery game, can this pizza pioneer make a seamless transition to the digital age and cook the competition? I've said it before, I'll say it again. Do not give up on great companies just because they hit a speed bump. Just look at Domino's Pizza. When Domino's reported a not-so-hot quarter in February, the stock got obliterated, trading down to $239 a month ago. As everyone started worrying that maybe the company couldn't deliver now that longtime CEO Patty Doyle retired. Oh, come on. That was the moment to buy the stock, not sell it. In recent weeks, Domino's has taken off, thanks in part to the analysts who keep pointing out that it had gotten too cheap to ignore. Then this morning, the company reports a seemingly mixed quarter, yet the stock pole vaulted $13 or 4.89%. Why? Because while the same store sales came in weaker than expected across the board and the total revenue was a little soft, Domino's had excellent margins. And when you factor in the impact of their huge buyback, management was able to deliver a terrific 11-cent earnings beat off a $2.09 basis. Apparently, that was enough to reassure the bulls. And the stock was off to the races, rebounding to $283. Is the comeback for real? Let's check in with Rich Allison, the CEO of Domino's Pizza. Hear more about the quarter and his vision for the future. Mr. Allison, welcome back to Mad Money. 
Hi, Jim. Great to be with you again. All right, Rich. I was a little worried when I saw the same store sales, but I could not believe how much money you could be making in this environment with the same store sales number. How was the cadence of the quarter? Is it just starting to gain a lot of steam right now? Yeah, Jim, we're, you know, we're continuing to see uh, terrific momentum uh, in our business. You know, in the first quarter, our global retail sales grew 8.5% when you adjust it for currency, continuing to see, you know, terrific profitability on the part of our franchisees. So we're excited about where the business is and the momentum that we have behind it. How many stores do you need? Because I want to congratulate you. You just opened your 16,000th store. Now, I'm a Domino's user, and I go where I go. I use Domino's, but I got to know, do you need another 5,000 stores? Jim, we need a lot more stores. You know, when we take a look at our business uh, and we look out toward 2025, you know, we see a business that could have 25,000 stores, about 8,000 of those in the United States and the rest outside. And it's all part of our strategy to fortress the markets that we operate in, which brings a lot of benefits. You know, gets us closer to the customer so our service improves, lowers the cost of that delivery as we're driving fewer miles, and also, frankly, improves the wages for our drivers because they're getting more delivery runs per hour. Well, that's important because I was going to ask you, how do you keep your drivers, given the fact that we've had almost all the companies that deliver and they all say the same thing? It's a mad scramble to get employees. I guess because of the way that you work, you pay more than everybody else. You know, Jim, we do. You know, when, when our stores are busy, you know, our drivers are making a lot of money. And, and the other thing that comes along with it with Domino's that you don't get in some of these other businesses is that there's a path to becoming a small business owner uh, and even a large business owner inside the Domino's system. Ninety plus percent of our franchisees in the United States started off as drivers or answering the phones in our stores. It's just a great way to build a business and build wealth over time for folks that are willing to go after it. Are there master uh, franchisees who actually started as delivery people? Master? There sure are. Really? You know, some, some of our largest master franchisees around the world started off delivering pizza. You know, Don May, our, our uh, CEO of Domino's Pizza Enterprises, our master franchisee based in Australia, began as a delivery driver, and now he runs a business with about 2,500 Domino's pizza stores. Well, I wish more people knew this kind of thing. I know we've talked about it with Mr. Doyle before, because I think there's an essence that if you didn't go to Stanford Business School and you didn't code, well, you know what? You've been left behind. These people not only have not been left behind, but I bet you they even have a good technology background by the time they finish working as, as a delivery person at Domino's. Absolutely. You know, technology is such an important part of our business, Jim, you know, through and through from the consumer interface now coming all the way back through the stores and out in the hands of our drivers. It, it is really permeating every part of our business. Now, you uh, launched, when you were here last, a, uh, a program. It was a uh, taking pictures of pizza, any pizza, uploading them to the Domino's app. Obviously, the more people get the Domino's app, the better. How successful was that, and how's the rewards program doing? You know, Jim, we're really pleased with our Points for Pies program. You know, it's, it's helping us deliver on some of our important objectives. We wanted to get our app downloaded on more consumers' phones, and that's happened. We wanted more enrollments into our loyalty program, and that's happened. And now we're starting to see some of those new enrollees ordering and ordering again. And in addition to all of that, it's given us some really interesting intelligence about where, where else our consumers go uh, to buy their pizza. So our customers don't eat all of their pizza at Domino's. We want them to eat as much of it as possible, but they go other places. And now we know a lot more about that than we did just a few months ago. Is it helping you take share? I mean, you've got a bunch of competitors. I know that you have been the share taker. Is that still continuing? Absolutely, Jim. You know, in the first quarter in the U.S., uh, our retail sales grew 7.9 percent, you know, and that's in a category that grows at very low single digits. So we're continuing to take a significant amount of market share. You talk about a term in the conference call, fortressing impact, uh, because you're worried, some of the analysts are worried about aggressive promotional activity by third party delivery weighed on the U.S. comp this quarter. Talk about fortressing, uh, fortressing delivery and what it means to make it so that you guys, uh, you have a moat versus everybody else. Yeah, Jim, if, you know, if we want to win for the long term, and we sure do, we've got to do a couple of things really well. You know, number one, 
we've got to provide great service and consistent service to our customers. And number two, we've got to be the lowest cost delivery uh, provider out there. This fortressing strategy really works on both of those dimensions. As we tighten those delivery areas down from our historic nine minute or so drive times down to five or six minutes, it shortens the time to get to the customer and instead of getting there in 30 minutes, we can get there in 25 or 20 or even some of our great franchisees who are getting it done in 15 and 16 minutes. And then secondly, the more runs that we get per hour, it just improves the economics of each of those delivery orders because in some of the high wage labor markets today, it's really difficult to take $20 worth of food nine minutes away from your location and make money on that order. We have to bring these territories down tighter to accomplish our objectives and to protect ourselves against uh, this new emerging set of competitors. Well, it is absolutely working. I'm so glad that the numbers are back. I think that it's always been the best business model. Rich, you're doing a fabulous job. That's Rich Allison, CEO of Domino's DPZ. Let the bears keep trying to knock it down. Forget about it. Great business models always win with good management. Man, money's back after the break. Beginning of the year, like clockwork, the analysts scramble to raise their estimates for coming 12 months, and that gets money managers pumped for the rest of the year. Buy, 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 buy. These are the kinds of courageous analysts who love to upgrade stocks that are going higher, and of course downgrade the ones that are going lower. They always want to start the new year off with a bang, but not this year. This year they held their tongues, except where they cut their price targets because 2018 ended so poorly. Rather than trying to put a positive spin on the new year, they dispensed with the ritual January bullishness, and they stayed in their foxholes. They were terrified even to peek out, put their heads up, and try to even imagine a brighter future. Now we're seeing the fruits and wages of that fear as company after company beats these expectations that were set down months ago when it felt like the sky was falling. They keep topping the estimates because those estimates were never raised to begin with. Like, they would have been typically at the start of any other year. Way too many people assume that these first quarter numbers would be nasty. I mean, the Fed trashed the economy in the fourth quarter, and the White House kept escalating its trade war with China. Of course business would be terrible, right? Wrong. The Fed changed course in January. Commodity inflation peaked, and now many companies are turning in truly better than expected quarters, including this very evening where I see one after another after another. So many companies are singing pretty much the same tune. It goes like this. Let's just go over what's happening. All right, so you have a good view. First, free cash flow. Incredibly important and incredibly strong. That's allowed them to buy enormous quantities of stock, and when you reduce your share count, well, what happens? You boost the earnings per share. Second, while China was a real worry at the beginning of the year, do you know that it's now one of the strong points of 2019? Anyone who does business there saw an uptick from uh, Nike to United Technologies. Yeah, check out those Otis numbers for United Tech, the elevator coming. The trade war doesn't seem to matter. The People's Republic has gone from an unsurprising negative to a shocking positive in three short months. Who'd have thunk it? Third, domestic consumer-oriented consumers are still reaping the benefits from strong employment. Yet it, it, it's, it's not too strong meaning it's not producing too much wage inflation. You can argue about whether that's good for the country, but it's definitely good for the stock market. Fourth, this one's really important. It's finally dawning on many money managers that raw costs and transportation costs have peaked. Have I told you how many times that was going to happen this year? But we, what we haven't seen is the peak in prices paid by the consumer. Companies keep raising the prices, and those increases are sticking because the economy's in good shape, so you can get them. Wait, wait, what do we call that? Margin expansion, last but not least, three months ago. Many portfolio managers were betting that it was only a matter of time before the Fed hit us with not one, not two, but even three hikes. Sure, Fed Chief Jerome Powell had started talking about a pause, but they figured more tightening was inevitable. Now, despite some strong jobs data, you got a lot more people who believe a rate cut might actually be likely. As long as that's a possibility, it's a mistake to leave too much cash sitting on the sidelines. Put it all together and you can understand why the averages are flirting with new all-time highs now. We've had a fabulous run since the beginning of the year. Truly amazing, because this situation is a whole lot better. When it seemed like the Fed was about to tighten multiple times and earnings were going to be falling off a cliff, and the trade war with China was running hot. 
It made a lot of sense for money managers to keep a ton of cash on the sidelines. But with the Fed finished tightening and possibly ready to start easing, with earnings hanging in there, with China doing great in spite of the trade war, that money on the sidelines has had to come flooding back into the market. And you know what? I don't think it's done. John in Utah, John! Booyah, Jim. Booyah, John. Thank you for taking my call. Pleasure. I'm from Provo, the home of Brigham University, and I really enjoy your show. I like your enthusiasm thank for, you. the, for the subject, and you do a great job. Ah, oh, thank you very much. My question is about the trade desk, symbol TDT. TTD, I guess. That is an online. That's an online platform that is really considered to be the state of the art. It's been a remarkable stock. I keep thinking it's too hot and too high. Up another seventy nine percent this year. What do I know? I plead guilty. Mia culpa. I did not think it would go this high. Sometimes you have to own when you were too conservative. It's all about expectations, and those were set when the market felt like the world was going to end. There's so much more mad money ahead. I love it. You know, I feel like I haven't slept in three days. That's how much I love this show. He was one of the first business leaders to predict the rise of the subscription economy. Tonight, I'm asking the CEO of Azura, Mr. Zoe, where he sees the trend going from here. Then, what does a Cloud King's earnings report signal for the rest of the sector? I'm going to sit down with one of the hottest ones. I'm going to sit down with the CEO of ServiceNow. Breakdown, slash support. And, of course, all your calls. Rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with... Kramer. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. Gorillas. Beautiful gorillas. Well, the, no, not the beautiful gorillas. I'm talking about terrorists. Oh, you're talking G-U-E-R. <laughs> Not G O R. Not that's not Mozambique. What are you, Jane Goodall? It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. At the beginning of the year, like clockwork, the analysts scramble to raise their estimates for coming 12 months, and that gets money managers pumped for the rest of the year. Bye, 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 bye. These are the kinds of courageous analysts who love to upgrade stocks that are going higher and, of course, downgrade the ones that are going lower. They always want to start the new year off with a bang, but not this year. This year, they held their tongues, except where they cut their price targets because 2018 ended so poorly. Rather than trying to put a positive spin on the new year, they dispensed with the ritual January bullishness, and they stayed in their foxholes. They were terrified even to peek out, put their heads up, and try to even imagine a brighter future. Now we're seeing the fruits and wages of that fear as company after company beats these expectations that were set down months ago when it felt like the sky was falling. They keep topping the estimates because those estimates were never raised to begin with. Like they would have been typically at the start of any other year. Way too many people assume that these first quarter numbers would be nasty. I mean, the Fed trashed the economy in the fourth quarter, and the White House kept escalating its trade war with China. Of course, business would be terrible, right? Wrong. The Fed changed course in January. Commodity inflation peaked, and now many companies are turning in truly better than expected quarters, including this very evening where I see one after another after another. So many companies are singing pretty much the same tune. It goes like this. Let's just go over what's happening. All right, so you have a good view. First, free cash flow, incredibly important and incredibly strong. That's allowed them to buy enormous quantities of stock, and when you reduce your share count, well, what happens? You boost the earnings per share. Second, while China was a real worry at the beginning of the year, do you know that it's now one of the strong points for 2019? Anyone who does business there saw an uptick from uh, Nike to United Technologies. Yeah, check out those Otis numbers for United Tech, the elevator coming. The trade war doesn't seem to matter. The People's Republic has gone from an unsurprising negative to a shocking positive in three short months. Who'd have thunk it? Third, domestic consumer-oriented consumers are still reaping the benefits from strong employment. Yet it, it, it's, it's not too strong, meaning it's not producing too much wage inflation. You can argue about whether that's good for the country, but it's definitely good for the stock market. Fourth, this one's really important. It's finally dawning on many money managers that raw costs and transportation costs have peaked. Have I told you how many times that was going to happen this year? But we, what we haven't seen is the peak in prices paid by the consumer. 
Companies keep raising their prices, and those increases are sticking because the economy is in good shape, so they can get away with it. What do we call that? Margin expansion. Last but not least, three months ago, many portfolio managers were betting that it was only a matter of time before the Fed hit us with not one, not two, but even three hikes. Sure, Fed Chief Jerome Powell had started talking about a pause, but they figured more tightening was inevitable. Now, despite some strong jobs data, you got a lot more people who believe a rate cut might actually be likely. As long as that's a possibility, it's a mistake to leave too much cash sitting on the sidelines. Put it all together and you can understand why the averages are flirting with new all-time highs now. We've had a fabulous run since the beginning of the year. Truly amazing, because this situation is a whole lot better. When it seemed like the Fed was about to tighten multiple times and earnings were going to be falling off a cliff and the trade war with China was running hot, it made a lot of sense for money managers to keep a ton of cash on the sidelines. But with the Fed finished tightening and possibly ready to start easing, with earnings hanging in there, with China doing great in spite of the trade war, that money on the sidelines has had to come flooding back into the market. And you know what? I don't think it's done. John in Utah, John! Booyah, Jim. Booyah, John. Thank you for taking my call. Pleasure. I'm from Provo, Oklahoma, Brigham University. And I really enjoy your show. I like your enthusiasm thank for, you. the, for the subject, and you do a great job. Ah, oh, thank you very much. My question is about the pay desk, symbol TDTDT, TTD, I guess. That is an online, that's an online platform that is really considered to be the state of the art. It's been a remarkable stock. I keep thinking it's too hot and too high. Up another 79% this year. What do I know? I plead guilty. Mia culpa. I did not think it would go this high. Sometimes you have to own when you were too conservative. It's all about expectations. And those were set when the market felt like the world was going to end. There's so much more mad money ahead. I love it. You know, I feel like I haven't slept in three days. That's how much I love this show. He was one of the first business leaders to predict the rise of the subscription economy. Tonight, I'm asking the CEO of Azura, Mr. Zoe, where he sees the trend going from here. Then, what does a Cloud King's earnings report signal for the rest of the sector? I'm going to sit down with one of the hottest ones. I'm going to sit down with the CEO of ServiceNow. Breakdown slash report. And, of course, all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. Gorillas. Beautiful gorillas. Well, the, no, not the beautiful gorillas. Beautiful. I'm talking about terrorists. Oh, you're talking G-U-E-R. Not G-O-R. Not that. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. The CNBC stock draft is back. And with a field that includes a scrappy entrepreneur and a major league pitcher, a repeat won't come easy for Nick Lowry. The CNBC Stock Draft, a Power Lunch special event, tomorrow, 2 Eastern, CNBC. Sure, a resume is a great way to see someone's experience, but you're not hiring a resume, you're hiring a person. That's why Indeed offers tools that help bridge the gap between a candidate and their resume. Like skill tests, which let you actually see a candidate's abilities in action to make sure they're a good fit for the job. It's no wonder Indeed delivers three times more hires than any other job site. See beyond the resume. With Indeed, get a free sponsored job upgrade on your first posting at Indeed.com slash offer. Hey, did you? Yep, done. And the? Of course. And? Oh, yeah. All in one? Hour. Behind the world's most productive people is the world's most comfortable chair, the incredible X-Chair, featuring patented dynamic variable lumbar support. X-Chair's adjustable seat depth keeps users small to tall, comfortable, and supported. Available in breathable mesh, HDR foam, or top grain leather. Customize comfortable positions for your neck and arms. And X-Chair's patented SciFloat Infinite Recline provides the perfect recline for users of almost any size. X-Chair leverages 21st century technology to create the most comfortable, productive workspaces in the world. This is not your grandfather's office chair. Call or click to get $100 off the amazing X-Chair, featuring dynamic variable lumbar support. Plus, for a limited time, you can also receive a free footrest and free same-day shipping. Just use code TV. This deal is good for any X-Chair you choose. Call or click to order today and receive a 30-day risk-free trial and $100 off. When the world is watching and you need your logo to be perfect, you need certainty. At 4imprint, we give you the ultimate guarantee. Because when something has your logo on it, it matters to you. 
your customers, your coworkers, and to us. Our wide selection always changes to keep up with the latest trends. But there is one thing we deliver that's timeless, certainty. Explore thousands of promotional products at 4imprint.com. 4imprint, for certain. When you rent a car on Turo, you're renting from a real person. No shuttle rides, no waiting in line, and no wandering a car lot. This is better than your typical car rental. This is Turo. Download the app today. I got the deal of a lifetime on Poshmark. I got these barely worn Louboutin heels and I paid $100 for them. I would have paid over $700 for these in the store. Get $5 off your first order. Download the free Poshmark app now and use offer code LOVEPOSH. With all these newly minted IPOs attracting so much attention, what are we supposed to do with last year's terrific crop of deals? Many of these stocks are somehow in the doghouse, in part because money managers are selling them to participate in the next round of initial public offerings. And at this point, some of them may be too attractive to ignore. Consider the case of Zora. That's the cloud-based software company that helps its customers launch, manage, and grow their own subscription services. I like to think of it as kind of a pure play on the subscription economy. And it's looking more and more like subscription services are the future. But after performing pretty well out of the gate, Sora's stock got slammed late last year. While it's rebounded from its lows, it got hit again when the company reported last month. The guidance was a tiny bit late. Look, the quarter was good. Sometimes it's hard to understand this stuff. Still, I think this is the best way to invest in the subscription economy. And with the stock trading at seven times next year's sales, which is cheaper than a lot of others, and certainly than it used to be, I think it's attractive. So let's take a closer look with Teen Zoe. He's the founder and CEO of Zora who literally wrote the book on the subscription economy, subscribed, which I love. You get a better sense of how his business is doing and where it's headed. Mr. Zoe, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, Tim. Have a seat. Thank to be you. Here. There's a great line in your conference call, not the one where you mentioned me. I'm always grateful for that, where you say the vast majority of business models have to eventually transition to subscriptions. That seems like a bold comment, given the fact that most of businesses don't even know what a subscription does. Yeah. How's well, it going to happen? Well, they, they, they know. I mean, for the last 10 years, we've seen the rise of what this thing we call the subscription economy. But here in 2019, we're starting to seize this idea of an end of ownership. And that might sound like a crazy idea, but, but all around you, you're seeing unit sales go down. Like, just look at the car industry. The number of cars sold last year has actually went down. I'm glad you mentioned that because with employment up yeah. and with household formation growing, we should have the biggest number of cars sold. We should. We it's should. not happening. And car sales are down in China, of all places, right? And where, where, where so many more people are coming into the middle class, but it's going down. And because people, there's so many other options out there that you know, anybody under 35 is probably opting not to buy a car. Now, the Ford and GM understand this? Well, here's the thing. The number of miles driven have gone up. And so if the car companies can think like a subscription company and tie their revenues to miles driven... Their, their revenues would go up. But if it's tied to car sales, it's only going to go down, down, down for the next decade. And so McKinsey says, actually, there's $1.5 trillion of connected car services available. And the question is, who's going to get that revenue? Is it going to be the car companies? I would bet on them. Now, I think people have to understand the unique uh, proposition you offer. Uh, obviously, as the founder of the street, we use you. Every subscription company that I know has to use you because, really, you are the gold standard. And yet, when I look at it, I mean, I see these companies like Caterpillar. Yeah. I mean, what does Caterpillar know? They well, reported today, yeah. a good company, but you know, they're not new in the sense of knowing how to subscribe to something. Well, what's driving the end of ownership? I mean, we think subscription businesses, we think these technology companies. Right. Like Zoom is a great example. Of, of which we, we, I use, and it's fantastic. Yeah. And so, so we, we power Zoom's business as an example. Right. Or you think about media companies, Dow Jones, uh, Financial Times, Economist, right? Um, but every single physical product is now coming off the assembly line connected to the Internet. And what's happening is these products are now becoming essentially edge devices in, in a network. And so what companies are saying is now that my products are smart, when my engineers know what my customer, how my customers are using my product, right, which right. is exactly what the software as a service companies, they know how you use your product, they provide a service to you. And so what you're going to see is every physical product from, from, from appliances from Whirlpool, cars from Ford, tractors from Caterpillar, they're all going to go through a transformation and become services. Well, I think it's rather amazing because I think a lot of these companies uh, will be far more lucrative. It's not something they should necessarily fear, correct? Well, if you look at the software industry, the software industry was in the doldrums around 2005, right. 2006. But when the industry tipped over to software as a service, it found growth. 
And we really believe that the manufacturing industry, as it goes through this, 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 this transition, is going to find new sources of growth because the power of subscription businesses ultimately is growth. It helps you grow right. your businesses. Well, you've got an outstanding statistic. You say uh, subscription economy index, the latest one from the fall shows that over the past seven years, subscription businesses grew the revenue Five times faster than the S&P 500? Five times faster than the S&P 500 and grew about 300% in the last seven years. And so what we're seeing is the early adopters of the subscription economy are finding growth. And that's why everybody is moving into the space. Now, usually I hear that Europe's way behind us. Europe's moving fast on this. This latest study we did was, was super interesting. Europe is actually slightly faster in growth of the subscription economy. Uh, for a while, the technology sector was in the lead, but the IoT sector has actually eclipsed things, the technology. Really? The Internet of Things. Manufacturing companies releasing smart devices connected to the Internet. Now, you've also got this thing Collect, which I like because there's a lot of... One of the big problems people have subscriptions is deadbeats. Now, yeah. we don't call them that. We call them people who haven't paid. Yeah. But you've got some way to be able to, to reap that harvest. Well, collections is a great example of how these businesses are so different. In the old model, I shipped you to the product. So if you didn't pay me, I come to collect. Right. But now, I want you to continue using the service. And so maybe you just need a break. Maybe you need to update your credit card. Right. Maybe you need some help through some right. period of time. Right. Right. So collections is, a, once you have a relationship with a customer, collection becomes a sensitive dance to make sure, look, I would like you to retain a long-term customer. How can we do that? Well, what I was going to say is, is that the key to me in subscription is long-term value of customer. And if you can make it so someone is a customer and they stay long-term, I can price that company's value. Well, that's why Wall Street is, is, is valuing these new subscription businesses that are coming on the market so much higher than their product counterparts. And, and I think you've got the essence of it. The people that don't quite understand the subscription economy are taking existing products and trying to figure out how do you pay over time. That's not what this no. business is about. This business is about building customer-centric business models, taking technology today, IoT, mobile, right. whatever it is, right, and then transforming what you do as a service. This is the heart of these digital transformations that the companies are going through. Well, I said this when team when the company was private. Now it's public. I love to have companies that only go public. It's, it. it's a game breaker. You can't really run a subscription business unless you hire these guys. It's rather amazing. It's about as close to Monopoly as I've seen if you are in the subscriber business. That's Teenzo. Teenzo is the CEO and founder of Zora. And, you know, ZUO, I don't get the price. Honestly, sometimes you just have to say, I don't get why it's trading so low. They have money's packed after the break. It is time! It's time for the and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Skig? Dad, it's over the lightning round. Let's start with Kim in New Jersey. Kim. Hi, Jim. Thank you for all you do for the home gamers. You are quite welcome. My, my stock is Textron TXT. All right, here. Textron put an upside surprise. I figured the stock would have some staying power. No, it just went right back down, and that's why I say don't buy. Don't buy. I need Kevin in Minnesota. Kevin. Jim, thanks for taking my call. Of course. Hey, Jim, hey, is it time to buy Halliburton? The House of Pain. Is it time to move into the House of Pain? I don't know. I don't even want to sublet there. Let's go to Pete, New Jersey. Pete. Hey, Jim, what do you think about Eagle Pharmaceuticals? I think nothing of it. I don't like to specialty pharmas at all. Let's take a big old pass on that one, Mr. Gordon Stater. How about Manuel in Illinois? Manuel. Yeah, Jim, I just want your thoughts on Six Flags. They made the dividend sound pretty safe. Just want your thoughts. Inconsistent. Inconsistent, says the diplomat in me. How about Kevin in Illinois? Kevin! Booyah, Jim. This Booyah. is Kevin from Chicago, Illinois, the city of big shoulders and narrow goalposts. We and Jordan Howard, Eagles thank you very much. Next year. Okay, which one? <laughs> Uh, uh, my stock is Cars.com. No, 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 Cars.com. You know, I, you know, I've been thinking about what Teen Zoe said tonight about the subscription economy. We're going to lay low from any car company that's not perfect, that's pristine and perfect. Let's go to Glenn in Florida. Glenn. Hi, Mr. Kramer. How are you? I'm good, Glenn. How about you? Thank you. Thank you. I'm good. No uh, I saw your interview with the CEO of Micron. I crunched the numbers a bit, and I bought it. Um, got a PE of four, earns ten sixty-five a share. Right. Where's it going? Where's well, it going? Uh, you Mr. know, Sanjay Marotra is a guy I like. Now, they're not going to probably do that number, or else the multiple wouldn't be so low. That's usually a sign that the earnings are not going to be there. That said, I think people are going to look through it. 
That's why I would say don't buy here. Don't buy. If don't it buy. goes back to 39, buy, 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 buy. He's got to give it a little room because I don't think they're going to make the quarter. Hey, you know what? I'm not done. I'm going to go to Helen in South Carolina. Helen. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. My You're welcome. My stock is Churchin Dwight. Yeah, Churchin Dwight's doing some acquisitions, doing some small things. Uh, you know, when I'm in that consumer package goods, I like Procter. I like Estee Lauder. And you know what? We might be able to take a flyer on Colgate. I bet you it's a good quarter. How about Jim in the Illini? Jim. Hi, Jim. Great day to you today. Oh, same to you, Jim. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on Aflac, AFL. Okay, here's my wrap on Aflac. It's been the same for about a decade. It goes up nicely over time. And I tell you, that's not a bad thing to say. It goes up nicely over time. And that, ladies and gentlemen, of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. The Cloud Kings, they just keep delivering. Just look at ServiceNow, the software company that lets businesses automate various information technology processes, not to mention all sorts of back office jobs. You know what? These guys are the king of helping other companies save money on labor costs. But even Cloud Kings needed the rest. This stock had been trending water for the past couple of months after an epic move in January and February. Then after the close today, ServiceNow reported a true blowout quarter. And the stock roared in after-hours trading. Company delivered a 13-cent earnings beat off a 54-cent basis. That is huge. Substantially higher than expected revenue, up 38% year-over-year. Even better, management gave bullish guidance for the next quarter and also raised their full-year subscription revenue and billings forecast. It was a terrific quarter. We have loved this company, I can't, I don't know, for a couple hundred points. So let's dig deep with John Dono. He's the president and CEO of ServiceNow. Find out more about the quarter and his company's prospects. Mr. Dono, welcome back to Mad Money. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? Well, John, it's always great to see you because you are the delivery man. And I'm looking at a chart in your deck. 17 of top 20 deals in Q1 included three plus products. I've heard of land and expand. That's nonsense. You are landing and you're taking over. Well, Jim, that's the power of being a platform. And fundamentally, ServiceNow is a platform. It's a platform that enables you to digitize and automate workflows all across the company that allows you to deliver great experiences for your employees and customers and unlock productivity. So platform is what enables the growth of all the applications on top. Now, when I see these numbers, John, the first thing I think of is the reason why the Federal Reserve does not need to tighten is because there are companies like ServiceNow doing more with less, making your company far more efficient, not necessarily laying off people, but certainly as a company grows, ServiceNow grows with you. Are you part of a new economy that explains the greatness of how our company, our country can grow without inflation? Well, in many ways, Jim, I think the lessons that and experiences we've learned in our consumer lives over the last 10 years, where born in the cloud, or the mobile phone came out, cloud-based applications like a, an eBay, a PayPal, an Amazon, a Lyft, they allowed us to be more efficient at home and have better experiences, and that it was a win-win. That's now coming to our lives at work. And so a platform like ServiceNow helps a company provide a better experience for ourselves at work, whether it's a more automated experience. For instance, we're launching a mobile onboarding product next week, which will allow a new employee to go through their entire onboarding experience on their mobile device. That is both a better experience for the oncoming, incoming employee, and it's significantly more efficient for the company. So bottom line, I think you're right that a cloud, born in the cloud platform like ServiceNow is gonna help deliver better experiences and be more efficient which is the kind of win-win we need at work, just like we've had it at home. Uh, well, look, I, I didn't know about this uh, at mobile. I was going to go uh, towards shifting to subscriptions. I'm trying to figure out who else has that, because what I realize is that is just a decided advantage that you can take share. Who are you displacing with that? Well, Jim, in many ways, we're not displacing anyone. Here's what I hear from customers. Customers are embracing four to six strategic software platforms. Often it's Salesforce, it's Workday, it's ServiceNow, it's Adobe for marketing analytics, it's Office 365, maybe SAP if there's a supply chain. 
and they're trying to put as much as they can on these platforms. So there's going to be multiple winners. Now, ServiceNow's role within that is twofold. One, we're the IT system of record. We help IT departments go from being legacy IT to modern IT. But very importantly, we provide workflow, cross-functional workflow, around many of the other platforms. So employee onboarding, for instance, is an end-to-end employee experience. If you think about what it takes to onboard an employee, you need to get your badge from security, your desk from facilities, your laptop from IT, you got to sign up for your HR, your, your health plan, you got to sign up with payroll, which is in finance, with t and got to do compliance training. You're probably touching seven or eight different departments. What ServiceNow's onboarding app does is it connects all those together into a seamless experience for the new employee, but under the surface, it's connecting with Workday, with Concur, with ADP, with all the other supporting systems. And so I think this is a world where you're going to see multiple winners, and the real winners are going to be the employees who get better experience, customers who get better experience, and companies who get more efficiency and productivity. Right, and obviously people aren't wasting two days when they just hired, and they're not making any money for the company. Now, John, something I was looking for your release you guys are getting close to Adobe. You're getting close to Microsoft. But you know what? I know you as close to Salesforce. And I know we all got these things. Everybody gets along. I don't know anymore, John. I don't know how well Adobe gets along with uh, Salesforce. I mean, are you uh, trying to be Switzerland, but uh, maybe Drummond draws you into the orb? <laughs> Look, Jim, we're trying to do what we do best, which is digital workflow. And we realize that we want to be world class at what we do and then work highly effectively with the other platforms. That's what I hear from customers. Customers are saying to me, John, I want one plus one plus one to equal five. Or as one of my customers said, I want one plus one plus one time service now to help me get 10 times productivity. So we're working hard to integrate effectively with other leading technologies and other leading platforms because that's what customers want. Fundamentally, each of us do different things. Yes, there's some 5 or 10% overlap on the edges, but to deliver true digital transformation, to deliver truly better employee experiences, to deliver real productivity, we need to be able to work together on behalf of our customers, and that's what we're committed to do. Well, John, that's why you are a cloud king once again. Thank you so much for delivering NOW service now. Great work, sir. Great to see you. Congratulations. John Donahue is the president and CEO of ServiceNow. How much have we loved this stock? And thank you. Stick with Craig. Let's see. Uh, Microsoft, fantastic. Um, not bad. Uh, Facebook, unbelievable. Ah, could do worse. Lamb Research, amazing. How do you like that? And PayPal, not bad. Hey, that's a good night. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here, man, buddy. I'm Jim Craven. I'll see you tomorrow.